You're listening to The Firsts, The Forerunners of Islam, the series that visits those distinguished as leaders of humanity, not only in history, but in the ranks of the next world. Dive into the stories of the giants who were the first of their kind as they rose to the occasion and became preserved inspirations for generations to come. With your host, Sheikh Dr. Omar Salaman, let's meet The Firsts. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone and welcome back to the first Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala We are in the last two episodes prior to Ramadan and inshallah ta'ala before I start tonight inshallah ta'ala I want to invite you all to please do click on the link inshallah ta'ala and greet Ramadan with sadaqah Alhamdulillah every year we receive a lot of support from all of you that benefit from our resources and we keep them free and accessible all the time and we hope that inshallah ta'ala we can continue to count on you uh, to support us in Ramadan and beyond. So please inshallah ta'ala do sign up for the Greet Ramadan with Sadaqah campaign which basically will charge you inshallah ta'ala as soon as Ramadan starts so that you get the benefit of giving Sadaqah in Ramadan. So inshallah ta'ala start now and uh, get ahead of the game inshallah ta'ala. Secondly, I know that many of you have been asking about the Ramadan series. Uh, stay tuned inshallah ta'ala within the next few days ta'ala, for the first promo for our Ramadan series. And I'm truly looking forward to spending a lot of time with you. And as I said, if you have been enjoying the first, then this Ramadan series in particular inshallah ta'ala uh, will be close to your heart. With that, we end off with two people that are both from Al-Ashar Mubashireen, both from the Ten Promised Paradise but could not have had different life cycles and lifestyles. And that is Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And the next week we will finish off with Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu ta'ala anhu. When we talk about Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this is a man that was so elevated and so uh, high in the eyes of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu and the Prophet sallallahu himself. But subhanAllah, we don't, often talk about him in the capacity of the rest of the Ten Promised Paradise. And I think that, you know, subhanAllah, as people sort of go through the names of the Ten Promised Paradise, there are always a few names that are forgotten, right? Often forgotten when people are trying to recount those ten names. Obviously, you get Khulafa al-Rashidin, the four uh, Khulafa, and then you have some of the more prominent names, the more well-known names. And then usually it's Abu Ubaidah or Sa'id ibn Zayd uh, that would be left out of the ten. So who is Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah radiallahu ta'ala anhu and what's his story? First and foremost, his name is actually Amr ibn Abdullah ibn al-Jarrah. So his first name is Amr, his father's name is Abdullah, his grandfather is al-Jarrah. And we'll talk about why we don't refer to him as Ibn Abdullah but instead as Ibn al-Jarrah in a minute inshallah ta'ala. Uh, but first let's just mention that he is a Qurashi, he is one of the uh, tribes of Quraysh or his sub-tribe belongs to Quraysh but it is a far out tribe. He's from the tribe uh, known as Banu al-Harith ibn Fihr and it is a distant tribe uh, from the Prophet not a powerful tribe or an influential tribe in Meccan politics even though it is from Quraysh. So uh, he has the benefit of being a Qurashi but at the same time his tribe is not like Banu Hashim or Bani Umayyah or some of the other very powerful tribes that we have been speaking about. Um, so let's talk about his name for a bit inshallah ta'ala. Why is he uh, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and not Abu Ubaidah ibn Abdullah? There are three reasons that scholars mention for the potential of skipping his father's name when we call him the son of al-Jarrah. One of them is that you know it could be that his grandfather played more of a fatherly role in his life. So when the Prophet ﷺ mentions Ana ibn Abdul Muttalib, that I am the son of Abdul Muttalib, then that's one reason, right? That they say that perhaps it is that Abdul Muttalib, uh, you know, spent more time with the Prophet ﷺ than his own father who passed away uh, before he was born. So it could be that Al-Jarrah actually raised him as his grandfather. And that's one possibility. The second one is that sometimes, and it also goes back to the same narration about the Prophet ﷺ saying, I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. Sometimes the more well-known of the two, meaning if the grandfather was more well-known than the father, because the grandfather is technically still a father, right? 
uh, then a person will be known by the grandfather's name rather than the father. So another reason why they say that the Prophet ﷺ says, uh, Ibn Abdul Muttalib. In fact, the more common reason that is cited that the Prophet ﷺ was citing Abdul Muttalib. The third reason is one that will be understood in the capacity uh, of this biography, inshallah ta'ala, is that if the father was humiliated or known for something uh, very negative. So if if the grandfather was known for something exceedingly positive or the father was known for something exceedingly negative, then sometimes a person would go by the name of the grandfather rather than the father in either of those two instances. So we'll talk about where that comes from, inshallah ta'ala. So who is his mother? His mother, uh, her name was Umayma, but her lineage is disputed. And according to Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala, though we don't have any information on her, uh, she actually is considered one who accepted Islam. So his father certainly uh, is not amongst those that accepted Islam. His mother may have accepted Islam according to some narrations. He also has a brother by the name of Yazid who uh, did convert to Islam and is considered a Sahabi. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him, but we don't have much information about him at all. So what is Abu Ubaidah's story? Abu Ubaidah عنه, grew up in a family of archers. And he was a skilled, talented uh, military general without ever having led an army. He learned all of the crafts that have to do with uh, army and, and warfare, even though he had never actually led one before. So um, he knew how to, you know, how to uh, shoot at targets, whether they were stationary or whether they were moving. He was such an accurate uh, archer that he would uh, shoot right in the middle and he would split targets in half. He knew how to ride his horse and shoot mo moving targets at the same time. He knew how to carry heavy objects. He knew how to ride different types of animals. Uh, he had huge arms uh, to where he was uh, capable with his sword and capable with his bow and arrow, capable on a horse, capable on foot. He had learned all of the skills of detecting the signs of an army. So Abu Ubaidah as a young man, in fact, they say that by the time he was six, he could already handle a bow and arrow. And by the time he was 12, he was already more skilled than the most skilled warrior. Uh, Abu Ubaidah could detect whether an army had been in a certain place by the footsteps. He could tell you what animals were there. He could tell you the count of how many people and animals were there. Uh, so that's the level of the skill that he had radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And so he was being prepared for something great even as a young man. Now, when did he accept Islam? He was a teenager, uh, 18 or 19 years old. And he's considered one of the first 10 people to accept Islam. Again, you're going to keep on seeing people that are within the first 10, 15 or 20. Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu is considered to be from that first group of people that accepted Islam at the hands of who? Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So I'm going to preface this by saying that everything we talk about today and everything we talk about next week with Abdurrahman ibn Auf, all of it is to the ajr, to the credit of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu because he is the one that introduced Islam uh, to the both of them. So he embraces Islam at the hands of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq amongst the first group that were given da'wah by Abu Bakr and he immediately accompanies the Prophet and becomes from the people of Dar al-Arqam. So he learns in the school of Dar al-Arqam amongst the early companions of the Prophet Now, other than that, when it comes to his Meccan life, there isn't much that is talked about at all, in fact, except that he was tortured and that he was patient. And so you'll find that you know some of the writers will mention that he was tortured by his father, uh, so severely that he almost that he was almost killed. Some of them said that one of the reasons why there's such silence on him in Meccan Sirah, which generally is not covered as much as uh, the Sirah in Medina, is because he went into hiding because of the severity of the persecution. Uh, we find that you know there are some narrations that suggest that he played a role in assisting in the boycott, but even that is somewhat ambiguous that he was helping gather the food for uh, the tribe of the Prophet under. Uh, the boycott, and even his hijrah to Abyssinia is there's there's no information except that he is amongst those that made the hijrah, the second migration to Abyssinia to Al Habasha, and Al Dhahabi rahimahullah says if indeed he made that migration that it wasn't for long. So he went to Habasha, he gained the reward of making hijrah to Abyssinia because there is reward in hijrah, and he returned back to Mecca 
for some time until he made hijrah to Medina as well. Uh, and his brother from the Ansar when he made hijrah was the great Mu'ad ibn Jabal radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he gains the, the distinction of being, or one of the, the, the great distinctions amongst the companions was to be from Ashab al-Hijratayn, amongst those that made the two migrations. He gained that distinction. He, he would be amongst those that fought in every battle alongside the Prophet in some capacity as a general, right? Which is, which is something that is an added layer of uniqueness for him. So he didn't just fight alongside the Prophet in every battle, but every battle that he fought in, he held, uh, he held some position as a general uh, holding a banner, leading alongside the Prophet even after the death of the Prophet Abu Ubaidah was always in some capacity a general in the army. And he is also uh, one of the first hafaz, one of the first to memorize the Qur'an. So he was memorizing Qur'an as it was being revealed in Mecca. And he had a special attachment to the Qur'an, which subhanAllah reminds us of Salim uh, anhu, and the way that these people combined their love of the Qur'an with their love of the Prophet wasallam and fighting alongside the Prophet wasallam and defending him. So he's extremely skilled um, in battle. And the stories about him in battle are stories that, that display his position with the Prophet and what a hero he was considered. Of course, as we said, he could track armies. He had certain skill sets that others did not have. And one of the things that's mentioned about the Battle of Badr in particular is his father. Uh, you know, Remember that the Battle of Badr is known as the day of Al-Furqan, the day that distinguished and the day that was the day of criterion. Uh, that people had to fight against their family members for the very first time. Some of the Sahaba had to fight their brothers, like Mus'ab had to fight his brother, Ubaidullah. Uh, many of them had to fight their uncles and their fathers. When it came to Abu Ubaidah, one of the narrations that we find that is commonly mentioned is that his own father was after him in battle and that his own father wanted to sacrifice him. He was so angry with him becoming a Muslim that he wanted to sacrifice him to his idol and he was pursuing him over and over and over again. And this is mentioned in, in the later books of Sirah. It is a, a difficult narration, uh, you know, a difficult story to come across. And uh, what, what, this, what this suggests is that his father was after him in Badr and he was avoiding his father uh, throughout the battle, but eventually his father ambushed him. He had a singular mission in Badr, which was to kill his son and Abu Ubaidah instead. Uh, defending himself had to kill his father. So that's why some of the scholars mention that he's not Ubaidullah or he's not Abu Ubaidah ibn Abdullah, but Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah because he was put in that difficult situation. And when he did that, uh, he was um, you know, in, in a state of obviously grief and did not know what would happen to him. And that's where uh, some of the commentators of the Quran mentioned that Surah Al-Mujadira verse 22 was revealed in response that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was more beloved to these people than, uh, than, than their own family members. And when they were put in that situation where their own family members had come out against them to kill them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had removed any burden from them in that regard. So again, that entire incident between him and his father in Badr is one that is a difficult one. You don't find it in some of the earlier sources. It's more from the later commentators on the seerah, which casts some doubt on it. But nonetheless, we find that Abu Ubaidah like the other companions of the Prophet was put in the difficult situation in which he had to fight against his own family members. The real, the, the real story, subhanAllah, you know, from, from his stories of, of battling alongside the Prophet that really um, touches the heart is his role in Uhud. Now, of course, Uhud was the day of Talha, anhu, as we've said, and a day in which a few of the companions of the Prophet وسلم, rallied around him and protected the Prophet وسلم, even in the worst of those moments, even when the battle seemed to be lost at that point, And really they were putting their bodies on the line uh, in front of the Prophet وسلم, as the arrows were coming towards him, as the swords were swinging at the Prophet وسلم, as all of these difficult strikes were coming to the Messenger of Allah what we find um, is that with Abu Ubaidah he did something very unique. And that is when the helmet of the Prophet was driven into his face. 
Remember the Prophet suffered numerous wounds on the day of Uhud and he was almost killed والسلام, knocked into a ditch, teeth knocked out. His helmet was driven into uh, his jaw وسلم, and that was from one blow that, that, that drove it into, so you can imagine it being, being driven into the side of his face And Abu Ubaidah goes to the Prophet وسلم, and he takes his own teeth and he grabs the, 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 the helmet of the Prophet وسلم, with his own teeth, meaning he bites the helmet of the Prophet وسلم, with his teeth so that he could pull it out. And while he pulls out successfully the, uh, the chains from the, uh, the cheeks of the Prophet وسلم, he loses his, his two teeth. So the teeth that he was using to bite so that he could pull the, the helmet out of the face of the Prophet وسلم, uh, fell. And because of that, he had a speech impediment. And subhanAllah, I mean, this is, this is one of the miracles of that moment that uh, they used to say about his speech impediment that his dialect or his speech became more beautiful with the impediment than prior to the impediment. So they said, uh, That the appearance, the sound when he would speak, عنه, though he now had a, a twist in his speech, that it actually sounded more beautiful than before he had it. So... Uh, this was one of the miracles of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon him and of course in response to a great action that he did uh, in service of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in those difficult moments of Uhud. And the Prophet sallallahu used to frequently praise him. Rasulullah sallallahu used to say, Ni'mal rajul, uh, what an incredible man, what a great man Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah is. And there are a few incidents that show the Prophet sallallahu praise for him where most of them, by the way, most of the incidents of, of praise of Abu Ubaidah actually come in the Khilaf of Abu Bakr and the Khilaf of Umar. But you find some incidents where the Prophet himself praised him and uh, that, that put him in a certain light with the rest of the companions of the Prophet beyond the fact that he is one of the people of Badr, that he's one of the earliest that accepted Islam, that he's one of the people that made the first two hijras and his reputation in battle. Um, and one of those incidents is when two Christian leaders had come from Najran to meet the Prophet to debate with him. And their names were Al-Aqib and Al-Sayyid. And as they were debating with the Prophet they were about to do uh, what's known as Mubahala. So they would, uh, after the debate, invoke the curse of God upon the one that was, uh, that, was, that was lying or the one that was wrong. And these two people basically, at the end of the day, these two leaders backed out from this debate with the Prophet or particularly the Mubahala, because they said, if he is indeed a prophet, then we're going to be cursed. So they instead, you know, uh, wanted to learn Islam and they, they said, you know, send someone with us uh, to teach us the religion and to judge between us. And they said particularly, send with us a trustworthy person and do not send with us except a trustworthy person. Okay. So the Prophet ﷺ responded to them and he said, I will send with you a man who is qawi amin. Okay, qawiyan aminan. He is strong and he is trustworthy. Okay, and when the Sahaba heard that, the Sahaba always wanted to be amongst those who were praised by the Prophet ﷺ. So they heard the Prophet ﷺ say that the person I'm going to send with you is Amin, is Qawi Amin. And of course, these are two characteristics that are praised in the Qur'an um, as well. So the Sahaba uh, started to walk in front of the Prophet ﷺ and make their appearances known to the Prophet ﷺ, hoping it would be them. So one of them was Umar ibn Khattab anhu. They were hoping Rasulullah was going to say that it was him or it was him because each one wanted to be known by the Prophet ﷺ as Qawi and Amin. So the next day, as uh, they're praying in the first line, as they're making their appearances known to the Prophet ﷺ, their presence known to the Messenger ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ says, قُمْ يَا أَبَا عُبَيْدَ Stand up, O Abu Ubaidah. And the Prophet ﷺ said that every, uh, that, that every ummah has a ameen. Uh, and the ameen of this ummah, the trustworthy one of this ummah is Abu Ubaidah. So, إِنَّ لِكُلِّ أُمَّةٍ أَمِينًا Every ummah has an ameen, a trustworthy person. And my ameen, the ameen of this ummah is Abu Ubaidah Now remember when we talked about Az-Zubayr the Prophet said every prophet has a disciple and my disciple is Az-Zubayr That does not mean that the other sahaba 
are not like disciples to the Prophet but what that means is that he was distinguished in his response to the Prophet When it comes to Abu Ubaidah, the Prophet is saying every ummah has an ameen, every ummah has a trustworthy person, someone that looks out for the best interests of the ummah always and that is truthful uh, to the ummah, truthful to their covenant with Allah, truthful to their covenant with the Messenger and truthful with their covenant to the ummah of Muhammad And that person for this ummah is Abu Ubaidah and you'll see exactly why when we start to get to some of the incidents that took place with him after the death of the Messenger Okay, why he's the Amin of this Ummah. Some of the scholars mentioned that Rasulullah never gave one of his own titles to someone else. So he is As-Sadiq Al-Amin. So for the Prophet to refer to Abu Ubaidah in this way is, is truly a form of unique praise to him there's another narration, and, and typically when we when we talk about seerah, obviously narrations in the seerah are not put to the same level of scrutiny as a hadith uh, and things of the sunnah that are bearing in terms of jurisprudence and in terms of uh, you know what is to be derived from them. So typically when we're looking through the seerah, um, we're a little bit more lenient in that regard. Uh, but I will mention this one is narrated, though it's found in Seer Alam al-Nubula by Dhahabi uh, rahimullah and some of the books of biography. Uh, it's narrated from Al-Hasan al-Basri that the Prophet said. And obviously that means that there's a missing link because Al-Hasan al-Basri is not a companion, he's a tabi'i. And he would not narrate directly from the Prophet wasallam. And so uh, this narration is Mursal, the Prophet uh, Al-Hasan said that the Prophet said, مَا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا لَوْ شِئْتُ لَأَخَثْتُ عَلَيْهِ بَعْضَ خُلُقِهِ إِلَّا أَبَا عُبَيْدَ That there is no person amongst you who I would want to take some of their qualities, except for Abu Ubaidah, meaning that there's something special about Abu Ubaidah. Again, I mentioned that this is mursal, that this is a narration in which there's a missing link because uh, of the severity of it or the gravity of it, but it's still just a form of praise uh, for Abu Ubaidah uh, in the way that his character was known to have shined amongst the companions of the Prophet Abdullah ibn Mas'ud mentioned that akhillai, that my uh, my close friends amongst the companions of the Prophet are three, Abu Bakr, Umar, and Abu Ubaidah. So he's in that company with Abu Bakr and Umar in the narration of Ibn Mas'ud. Abdullah ibn Umar he also put him in that company when he said there were three amongst Quraysh whose manners and character excelled all others and they had the gift of uh, eloquent and gentle speech. And if people were to look at them, then they could not stop looking at them. And if they were to speak, then people would not stop listening to them. And he said that is Abu Bakr, Uthman, and Abu Ubaidah. Abu Bakr, Uthman, and Abu Ubaidah. So in the narration of Ibn Mas'ud, he's put in the company of Abu Bakr and Umar. In the narration of Ibn Umar, he's put in the company of Abu Bakr and Uthman. And in a, a powerful narration, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha uh, was asked, uh, by one of her students, Abdullah ibn Shaqiq, he said, I asked Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, which of the companions of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam were most beloved to him? Qalat Abu Bakr, she said Abu Bakr, which is well known. And then uh, I said, who? And then uh, she said to me, Umar. So it's well known Abu Bakr and Umar. Qultu thumma man, and then I said to her, and then who? So she said Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. So even in the, in the words of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she is in the companionship of Abu Bakr and Umar. May Allah be pleased with them all. Allahumma ameen. What are some other qualities that we know about him before we get to some of these incidents with him? One of them is that he was very easygoing. So he's tall, muscular, extremely handsome, um, very powerful. But at the same time, uh, عنه, he was very easygoing. And Easygoing with his character, not one who spoke loudly, not one who dominated his gatherings, but one who went with the flow. And even though he had all of these prominent characteristics, he was known for his zuhd, he was known for his asceticism. So he wore rough clothing, and he never really cared much for the matters of this world. Uh, what that also looked like in terms of zuhd was that he really didn't care for leadership and he didn't care for politics at all. 
So you don't find that Abu Ubaidah is one who really cared about positioning at all. In fact, Abu Ubaidah was one who had to be forced into his position constantly uh, and put in his place constantly, uh, meaning put in his position of leadership constantly because Abu Ubaidah did not seek it and that's what made him so worthy. SubhanAllah, you compare that to what the Prophet mentioned, that leadership is an amana, leadership is a trust. Then who better for leadership than Al-Ameen, than the Ameen of this Ummah, the trustworthy one of this Ummah. So he's constantly being ushered to leadership roles عنه, starting with the Prophet even though Abu Ubaidah clearly does not care about leadership roles. Uh, also from his asceticism is that he didn't marry much or have many children at all. In fact, any descendants that he would have had, there's, there's practically nothing about his family life. And any descendants that he had were believed to have died along with him in what we will talk about in the Amwas plague. So he really did not have much of an attachment to this dunya. He was a soldier and he saw his life as being a soldier in the service of the Messenger And he lives his life in mission after mission after mission, uh, being deployed by the Prophet and then Abu Bakr and Umar. He's not one that does much else in that regard. And because of that, just solidified his position of leadership, a dignified man who solidified his position of leadership in every single instance. Uh, and there are a few of these missions that are narrated. One of them is that when the Prophet sent him and Amr ibn As on a mission, he said to them, uh, do not differ amongst yourselves in terms of leadership. Now Amr was a new convert to Islam. Okay, And Amr ibn As, of course, had a learning curve like many of those that had converted to Islam, especially after the Fath in the last years of the Prophet So it took him some time to adjust, right? And he had a certain position before Islam, right? When he was opposing the Prophet So when the Prophet sends them out, he says to Abu Ubaid and Amr, without assigning a clear leader amongst the two, though it would be understood that Abu Ubaidah because of his seniority, his being amongst the first, his being a Badri, his being a you know uh, someone who lost his teeth in service of the Messenger in Uhud, being a Hafid of Quran, right? That he would be amongst those, or he would be considered the natural leader. But the, because the Prophet did not assign a leader between Abu Ubaidah and Amr, may Allah be pleased with them. As soon as they they leave, when they're on the way, Amr says to Abu Ubaidah that, "Listen, uh, I'm leading this army, and you're following me, right?" <laughs> so. Amr insists upon his leadership position and Abu Ubaidah immediately gives it to him. And he actually even you know, puts Amr forward to lead the Salah. Even though Amr was a new Muslim, because he understood the command of the Prophet that do not differ amongst yourselves in terms of leadership. So he was not going to argue about it at all. And he was sahla, he was easygoing. So he said, you lead and I will reinforce you inshaAllah ta'ala. I'll be your general. So he puts Amr forward. Amr who leads this army and uh, Abu Ubaidah who follows and he has absolutely no complaint in that regard. The Prophet وسلم, uh, deploys him in multiple uh, missions, especially in those last years where it started to move beyond um, just you know what was taking place in the immediate vicinity of Medina and Mecca. And there's one very uh, beautiful narration which is known as the story of the whale. Uh, Jabir ibn Abdullah anhu, he says that Rasulullah sent a group of us to the sea, to a mission on the sea, and he appointed Abu Ubaid al-Jarrah as our leader. And we were about 300 men. And along the way, we kept running out of food. So Abu Ubaid anhu, as the general, he was apportioning the food appropriately. He was trying to do his best to make sure that everyone was eating what they needed. Um, but at the same time, he was keeping in charge of it the entire time. Uh, throughout the journey, all they had was some dates. And Abu Ubaidah was giving us our daily ration of those dates, uh, little by little. Until it decreased to such an extent that every day we'd only have a date to eat. So imagine they're in battle, they're on a mission. Uh, and they only have a tamar, they only have a date to sustain themselves on a daily basis. And the narrator says, I asked Jabir anhu. Um, how could you survive with one date? He said that we came to know its value uh, when even that finished. So it came to a point where we didn't even have that one tamr that we would look forward to, that one date that we would look forward to. 
uh, every day. So subhanAllah, as Ramadan is coming up and you break your fast with that date, uh, think about this narration. He said, then we reached the coast. And when we got to the coast, this whale washed up and we'd never, you know, these were not a people that were used to the seas at all, right? They were a desert people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused this whale to wash up. And he said that that whale was like a mountain. It was so large that uh, we would eat from it. The troops would eat from it for over two weeks, for 18 days and nights. We would eat whatever we wanted from that fish. Obviously, they're calling it a fish. It, you know, it's a large whale. He said that it was so large that we could sit as a group in its eye sockets. And Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu ordered that two of its ribs be fixed on the ground in the form of an ark and that uh, a person could ride a camel underneath them and the person would not touch the top of that rib. Okay, so imagine subhanAllah how large this, this whale was that um, they could sit in its eye sockets in groups of 10 and they could pass under it uh, as Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu had ordered that the ribs be fixed in the ground and they would ride their animals underneath it and it would not touch them. So this was an incident that took place with Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a famous incident that's mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari. One of the greatest honors that the Prophet could have given him. And uh, subhanAllah, I just try to imagine that incident. Anytime you go to Mecca, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala write it down uh, for all of us. Allahumma ameen. When you're there, uh, imagine the scenes of persecution and imagine the scene of victory because they're both very important when you're there, right? And in Mecca, you know, at least in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, there really wasn't much but those two things, right? There's long years of persecution of the Messenger ﷺ, where as you're sitting there around the Kaaba, you can look around and you can imagine some of those narrations about the Prophet ﷺ first being persecuted uh, around the Kaaba. And all of these wonderful companions that we have covered, may Allah be pleased with them all. And then you have the incident of Fatih Mecca, where the Prophet ﷺ enters with such dignity and such mercy. And in that, such power, والسلام, not by responding with evil, but by setting a new standard وسلم, for Mecca as he fulfilled, uh, or as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fulfilled his promise upon our Prophet. Now, we always talk about the Prophet ﷺ coming into Mecca. And I want you to imagine the scene that Rasulullah of course split the army into three, which was common, okay? So one group enters from the left, one group enters from uh, the right, and then one group enters from the center, and Rasulullah is in front. Every one of those groups, those three groups, has someone holding a banner, all right, that's leading that group. The person that was walking in front of the Prophet ﷺ and in front of him throughout ﷺ as they were coming into Mecca was none other than Abu Ubaidah So think about the position in that glorious moment entering into Mecca and Abu Ubaidah is in front of the Prophet ﷺ carrying the banner of the center of that army. And when they arrive in Mecca, Abu Ubaidah is the one who causes the camel of the prophets the animal of the prophet sallallahu to kneel and who pitches the tent for the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and tends to him alayhi salatu wasallam in that moment i mean think about the glory of that moment right and in abu ubaidah radiyallahu anhu's humility he doesn't boast about that moment he doesn't talk about it we know this through the accounts of other people about him radiyallahu ta'ala anhu so the amin of this ummah leading as-sadiq al-amin of course, leading physically, but Rasulullah is always leading alayhi salatu wasalam, standing in front of the Prophet وسلم, and uh, leading the way uh, in that glorious moment, radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa alayhi salatu wasalam. So that is a position that signifies truly the rank of a person amongst the Sahaba of the Prophet وسلم. And Abu Ubaidah was of course one of those that was persecuted. And it is of course very interesting that you find that there's a trend here that starts to unfold when you look at Fatih Mecca that those that were persecuted in Mecca were put uh, to lead on that day, uh, including Abu Ubaidah and Bilal, and those that were like them, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with them all. So that was his position with the Prophet And when the Prophet passes away, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu, of course, in the famous incident uh, of going to the Saqifah, he takes with him Abu Ubaidah and Umar, may Allah be pleased with them. So. This is where the Khalifa is going to be appointed. 
And Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu is resolving the affairs of the Ummah. And as he goes to the Saqifah, he takes with him these two men. And Abu Bakr, without telling Umar and Abu Ubaidah why he brought them with him, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says to the Ansar, he says, I have with me here these two. I have the Farooq and I have the Amin of this Ummah. I have Umar and I have Abu Ubaidah. And I am pleased, okay, I am pleased with either one of them as our leader. So choose which one of them you would like to be our leader. Can you imagine that? SubhanAllah that, you know, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu is not one who would say this simply as an expression, right? Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu would not say that except that he has thought about it radiallahu ta'ala anhu and he has taken a decision, a thoughtful decision radiallahu ta'ala anhu uh, knowing who these people are, knowing the virtue of Umar and knowing the virtue of Abu Ubaidah. And he says that choose either one of them. And we know, of course, that uh, instead Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu was rightfully uh, chosen as the Khalifa. But the fact that Abu Ubaidah was even suggested in the same sentence as Umar by Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with them, to be the Khalifa of this Ummah, shows you his position radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Of course, Abu Bakr is appointed. And while Abu Bakr is appointed, Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu spends his his life under Abu Bakr, doing what he does best in missions and at war, uh, in battle with the Byzantines in particular, uh, fighting alongside the borders of Asham of greater Syria. And when Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu passes away, Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu sends a letter to Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu appointing him as the new general to replace Khalid ibn Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And of course, I've spoken about this before. That Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said that I did not replace Khalid out of, out of, uh, out of hatred for him or khiyana or betrayal, but I was afraid that the Muslims would, would put their trust in him and so they would be entrusted to him. Uh, they put their trust in him, meaning they put more trust in the sword of Khalid than in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he replaced Khalid ibn al Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu with Abu Ubaidah. And Abu Ubaidah received this عنه, in the middle of battle. And he didn't tell Khalid right away because the battle was about to start and he did not want to disrupt the battle or Khalid's plan. He didn't want to, uh, to mess things up. So he waited until after the battle and then he, he conveyed what was conveyed to him through that letter uh, to Khalid. And Khalid عنه, says, May Allah have mercy on you, O Abu Ubaidah. Why didn't you tell me as soon as the, the letter came to you? And he said to him that I didn't want to, uh, to ruin the plan or take away from you. And he said, dunya nurid. It's, we, we don't seek the leadership of this world. And we don't work for this, this world, but instead we are all brothers for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu waited until after the battle. And then it was known that Abu Ubaidah was the, uh, the commander, the, the general. But uh, at times Khalid radiallahu anhu still is appointed to lead specific missions and armies, the famous battle of Yarmouk being the, the most famous battle of Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And they really became uh, a great complement to each other. Why? Because Abu Ubaidah, as, as some of the scholars mentioned, he was a negotiator. Khalid radiallahu anhu was not a negotiator, right? Khalid, when he met with the leaders of others, uh, other armies and other groups, he immediately escalated and it went straight to battle. Abu Ubaidah at the, was, was the opposite of that and that he would... Uh, he would negotiate, he had more diplomacy than Khalid uh, anhu. So especially when it came to Asham, because there is a lot of complexity in dealing with the Byzantine uh, Empire with its different wings, uh, Abu Ubaidah was able to assure some of the leaders and the elders uh, from them to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to avert uh, some of the conflict that would take place and to assure them. Uh, we see also that because they were both brilliant in battle, that Damascus, Damashq, uh, was conquered at the same time by Abu Ubaidah and Khalid. They approached it from different directions. They were able to conquer Damascus uh, together. May Allah be pleased with them. And Abu Ubaidah was the Amir of Asham. Uh, he was the leader of Asham. He built Masajid in Asham uh, in greater Syria. He uh, built hospitals there. He built a famous, uh, a famous dam to stop some of the flooding that used to come to Asham. And Abu Ubaidah plays a role in the entire history there, that early history of Asham, including in 
uh, Jerusalem, including in Palestine where there's a famous uh, story that takes place there. So Umar who used to love him and used to honor him. He used to kiss his hand even as he was the Khalifa when he would see him. And there are a few incidents narrated between Umar and Abu Ubaidah and then we'll go to his death. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him. One of them is that Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu he told Abu Ubaidah uh, take me to your home. And this was common for Umar عنه, to check up on his generals. As he'd go and check up on his ummah, he'd also check up on his generals, he'd check up on his governors, and he would you know, go to their homes. And obviously with Abu Ubaidah, he's the Amin of this ummah, right? He's not going to be hiding anything. So Abu Ubaidah says, uh, What are you going to do at my place except that your eyes are going to shed tears? Why? Because you're going to see the difficulty that I'm living in. And I know you're going to cry. As much as Umar was a Zahid himself, an ascetic himself, Umar hated to see other people suffer the way that he suffered. And that started with the Prophet when he saw the difficulty that the Prophet lived with. So what then when he sees his companions, and when he sees people that he knows their fadl, he knows their virtue, uh, Umar anhu would always shed tears. So when he goes to the house of Abu Ubaidah, he walks in and he sees no furniture, no possessions, except for one pot that he would cook with, one pillow, and he had a few uh, broken um, you know, uh, uh, pieces of food that, that he would sustain himself with, a little bit of bread and some, uh, you know, some nuts, and that was it. So as soon as Umar anhu walked in and he saw the house of Abu Ubaidah, the Amir of Asham, the, the leader of Greater Syria, he started to cry. And Umar, uh, Abu Ubaidah says to him, Qad qultu laka, I told you that your eyes are going to shed tears of me, ya Amir al-Mu'mineen. Yakfika ma yubalighuka anni, o al-Maqil. He said, it's enough for you to just know what comes to you from me, meaning about me. Uh, you don't need to worry about me. And at the same time, uh, you know, don't hurt yourself by coming and seeing the difficulty with which I live. And Umar ta'ala anhu said, dunya kullana, that the dunya changed all of us. Except for you, Abu Ubaidah. SubhanAllah, what a powerful statement to come from Umar ta'ala anhu, that the dunya changed us all except for you. You remained intact from everything that came to you of this world, remained focused and upon the mission of the Prophet When Umar ta'ala anhu was in Medina, and Medina suffered under what's known as Am al-Ramada, the year of the ashes. Uh, Abu Ubaidah also played a, a serious role in alleviating some of the suffering of this ummah under the famine that struck Medina. And he sent from Asham to the Muslims in Medina about 4,000 camel loads of food to try to avert uh, the, the harm that had taken place with them. So then what happens to Abu Ubaidah uh, um, the plague breaks out and subhanAllah before COVID started and we didn't know the severity of COVID I, I gave a lecture, a, a break from the first about the plague of Amwas Abu Ubaidah had come to meet Umar outside of Asham of greater Syria and as they were meeting outside of Asham on the border of Asham uh, the news came to them that the plague had struck and that people were dying right and left and so the discussion then becomes, should Umar anhu proceed to Asham or should he turn back? So Umar anhu, he asks for shura from the people and then Umar anhu basically dismisses everyone except for the people of Badr, the veterans of Badr. I want to take the shura of the earliest Muslims uh, and the scholars amongst them, the Sahaba, to know what I should do. So Umar anhu is deliberating whether or not he should enter into uh, Asham during that plague. Most of them, uh, said to Umar anhu that he should return to Medina. Some of them said, go ahead. So eventually, Umar anhu, he comes out and he decides that uh, he's going to return to Al-Medina. Abu Ubaidah, when he hears that, anhu, he says to Umar the famous words, min qadarillah. Are you fleeing from the decree of Allah, O Umar? And Umar anhu says, I wish someone other than you, O Abu Ubaidah said that. Because... I love him so much and I don't want to disagree with him and I wish it would have come from someone other uh, than him. So he said to Abu Ubaidah, نَفِرُّ مِنْ قَدَرِ اللَّهِ إِلَىٰ قَدَرِ اللَّهِ We're fleeing from the decree of Allah to the decree of Allah. 
And Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who we'll talk about next week inshallah ta'ala, he intervenes and he said, I have heard from the Prophet directly that the Prophet said that if you hear of a plague that breaks out in the land, do not enter it. But if the plague breaks out while you are in that land, then do not leave it. So the famous hadith that has been cited so much over the past year about quarantining and things of that sort, subhanAllah. So this is the context uh, of that, this discussion between Umar and Abu Ubaidah. So Umar and his group went back to Medina. Abu Ubaidah and his group went back to Asham. And the plague then started to ravage more people. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was worried about some of his Sahaba that were still there. And at the top of that list was Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he sends a letter to Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he says to Abu Ubaidah in that letter, he says, look, inna li bika I need something from you. So when my letter comes to you, then approach me in Medina. I need you to come to Medina. Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu, he immediately said, he, he said, Umar radiallahu anhu does not need me. Uh, this is the, what's implied here is that he just wants me to get away from the plague. Umar wants to rescue Abu Ubaidah because he knows how important he is to the ummah. And Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu responds back to Umar radiallahu anhu with a, with a beautiful letter. And in it, he says, look, I'm not going to leave my army behind. Uh, I will stay with them. And I'm pleased with the decree of my Lord. If I die in this plague, it's shahada. And I will, I will be okay. So Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, excuse me and allow me. He didn't want to disobey the orders of Umar radiallahu anhu, but he knew what Umar was doing. He said, excuse me and let me stay with my army. And I'm pleased with the decree of Allah. And if I die in this plague, then it is shahada. He actually narrates, Abu Ubaidah is the one who narrates the famous hadith that if a person dies from a plague, that they are a shaheed, that they're a martyr. SubhanAllah, it's his riwayah from the Prophet So when Umar radiallahu anhu is waiting for uh, the response of Abu Ubaidah, when he gets that letter, he immediately starts to cry. And as he's weeping, the people thought that it might be that Abu Ubaidah actually died. So they say to Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, did Abu Ubaidah die? And Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he responded, he said, not yet, but not much longer. You know, it's, it's only a matter of time that he'll pass away. Then Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu responds to the letter and he tells Abu Ubaidah to at least find a place that is secure and that's elevated so that uh, the worst of the plague will not strike him. And so Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu calls for Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. They try to find uh, a place. Abu Musa radiallahu ta'ala anhu gets home, finds that his wife is struck with the plague. Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu takes his camel, starts to look for a place, and then he also is struck by the plague. And the people rush to their leader, to Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is the head of them all, right? He's the leader of Asham. And... Um, as they surround him and he's dying, he says to them, uh, that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has written upon the child of Adam uh, death. And so all of you will die, all of us will die. And so the smartest of us, the, the smartest amongst us is the one who is most humble to their Lord or who obeys their Lord most and who works towards the hereafter or to the inevitable most. And there is a long, beautiful uh, wasiyah of Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu reminding the people to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to hold on to their, uh, their deeds. And then Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu um, appoints Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, his brother in the hijrah, and he dies. And when he dies, uh, the people weep over the death of their leader, of Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he cries and he says, Imra'an lillahi ameenan, wa kana allahu fi nafsihi alima. He says, a man who was truthful to his Lord, trustworthy, truthful to his Lord. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was great in his heart. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And when Umar radiallahu anhu found out, he wept uh, out of his love for him. And he, he said, subhanAllah, if Abu Ubaidah was alive, this is, this is as, as high of a praise that you'll get from Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He said, if Abu Ubaidah would have lived, I would have appointed him to this affair, meaning I would have appointed him to the Khilafah and I would have met my Lord in peace. Like I would not, every Khalifa is carrying the hem, carrying the, the, the stress of who they're going to appoint after them. 
He said, if he would have made it, if he wouldn't have died before me, he said, I would have appointed him and I would have met Allah in peace, knowing that I made the right decision for the Prophet said, every ummah has an ameen and the ameen of this ummah is Abu Ubaidah anhu. And I want to end actually with one narration about our beloved companion that we've spoken about tonight, Abu Ubaidah And that is once again an incident with Umar bin Khattab Umar was sitting with a group of companions and he said to them, make a wish, make a wish. And the companions started to respond. So one of them said, I wish to have as much gold to fill this entire place so that I could spend it all on the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Umar says again, make a wish. And another man says, I wish that this place was full of jewels and gems and pearls so that I could spend it all for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Umar said, make a wish. Tamanna. And the companions respond and they say at that point, we don't know what to say, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, O Commander of the Believers. Meaning, we, you know, we don't want anything of this dunya. If we took anything from this world, we would wish for it just to spend it and use it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Umar says, as for me, I wish that this place, I had a room full of men like Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah. Subhanallah. If I could have a, a room full of this man, then that's better than all the gold of this world and everything that this world possesses. Meaning the quality of people, the quality of men. In one narration, he also said, Mu'adh and Salim, Mawla Abi Hudayfa. If I could have a room of Abu, of, of Abu Ubaidah's, I would be good. Then this ummah would be in khair, which shows you the value of these people, that what these people brought to us, particularly people like Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah, what they did for us could not be quantified in any way not in the way that it was gained, nor in the way that it was spent. And that is Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah in the eyes of the Prophet and Abu Bakr and Umar, may Allah be pleased with them all. And so what should he be in our eyes, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a man that was promised paradise by the Prophet amongst the ten. Radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. Jazakumullah khairan for tuning in tonight, inshallah ta'ala. I remind you again about the Greek Ramadan with Sadaqah option. Jazakumullah khair for your support, for Yaqeen throughout all of these years so that we could continue to publish free resources. And I pray that inshallah ta'ala you benefit and that we are together in Ramadan inshallah. And this next week we will continue with another companion, Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This podcast was brought to you by Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research. Dismantling doubts and nurturing conviction, one truth at a time. Tune in every week for the next episode and don't forget to subscribe to this channel and share with friends. Until next time, this has been The Firsts, The Forerunners of Islam.